Do you have any questions about your practice? question was about how we experience this idea that our practice is for the benefit of all beings. I think there are some situations like you described when you're a practice leader, there is an energetic quality you know, which you can feel in the moment. But I think the meaning of the bodhicitta is beyond that. in the sense that how we are as a person inevitably affects not only the people closely around us, but, you know, it ripples out. You know, if you're filled with anger or fear or hatred, that has an influence. If you're filled with kindness, compassion, peace, calm, that has an influence. And so even if we don't acknowledge that our practice is for the benefit of all, it is. It can help but be. It's made more powerful by the conscious articulation and aspiration of it so that it goes from being an inevitable byproduct of our practice to a strengthening of it being the motivation for our practice. You know, and that, that puts it into a huge context. So that when we're sitting here, it takes it from sort of the concern with the ups and downs and struggles that we're having within ourselves in the moment. Right? But we're seeing, yes, I'm doing this in order to benefit all beings. That's the motive that can be cultivated. It's tremendously energizing, you know, and opening. It takes us out of self-centered concerns, even when those self-centered concerns are around the practice itself. And that's why the the aspiration at the beginning of a sitting or the beginning of a day and the dedication of merit at the end of a sitting or the end of a day really helps to crystallize and strengthen 
this connection of bodhicitta. May my practice, may the benefit of the practice be for the welfare of all beings. It's very heart-opening. And it itself is a practice. So it's not that you know we make that aspiration or we make that dedication and that we should expect necessarily either to feel it in some cosmic way or to have a complete understanding of it. It's like a tiny little seed which we're watering. You know, and over time that seed flowers. And as I mentioned the other night, you know, when the Buddha turned the wheel of the Dharma and he set it in motion and it's rolled over all these centuries, it's clear that his practice under the Bodhi tree that night, thousands of years ago, is still affecting beings, you know, all over the world and who knows in what other worlds. And so our sitting here, while maybe not yet of the same power, is in that direction. You know, you said something recently about merit that helped make it more acceptable somehow to me. Uh, and then when I try to think about what you'd said, I'd forgotten. Uh, maybe you could repeat or say something similar. <laughs> well, I've forgotten too. <laughs> But <laughs> the question is about merit and what it means uh, in this tradition. It's really simple, even though the word in English really doesn't convey it, and often people have a lot of problems with that word. So don't get too hung up on the English translation. It means just the... Uh, You could say the energy of goodness. You know, the all those forces in the mind which are wholesome, which are skillful. Of love, of compassion, of kindness, of wisdom. You know, all those things that are cultivated in our Dharma practice. These these uh, energies in the mind have force, they have power. And it's very much in the same respect as we were just talking with Bodhicitta. It's not happening just in us in isolation from everything else. And so all of the force or the power of these skillful states, that's, the Pali word is punya. It's, It's wholesome, skillful energy. You know, and so we dedicate that energy and we share that energy.
permanence was at the heart of the problem itself. And um, I'm thinking about that in terms of, of, my, of my own suffering. Um, is that why self itself is sort of the, the center of everything? The question was about understanding the relationship of uh, Nietzsche impermanence to selflessness, whether there are other aspects aside from impermanence which contribute to the understanding of selflessness and the relationship of suffering to all of this. The experience of impermanence does not uh, there are other aspects to selflessness or in another Buddhist word for this is, is also emptiness. There are aspects of selflessness and emptiness that are not highlighted simply by the experience of impermanence. And that is um, one of the meanings of anatta or selflessness is uh, that all things are conditioned, which means arise out of causes. Now impermanence is part of that and all of those conditions are impermanent but another side or another facet of emptiness or selflessness is that there's nothing existing in itself. The, the phrase is self-existent. There's nothing which is just there and solid and substantial. Everything is arising out of conditions. And that's why very much like the image of the rainbow, which we mentioned earlier in the retreat, on the surface, it seems, yeah, the rainbow is something. It's a thing which we can see. But when we look more carefully, we see it's just an appearance arising out of conditions. You know, there's the water and the, the moisture and the light and the air and whatever. Given these conditions, there's an appearance of something. So that's a different aspect than the aspect of impermanence. Although all of those conditions are also impermanent. So... They're not divorced from one another, but you can see selflessness from these different sides, both through the side of the momentariness of phenomena. Nothing lasts long enough to be called self, to be self, and also from the side of componentality. <laughs> you know, that, that 
every arising experience is an appearance due to conditions. So from both sides we see selflessness. If we understood either of these aspects fully, the mind would be free of suffering. Because if we deeply, completely realize the impermanence of things, there would be no attachment. substantiality in the moment of realizing that there's no attachment, no clinging, no suffering but we see it, we get a glimpse of it for a moment or two or three and then again the mind reifies experience in one way or another and we start relating to experience as being substantial again it's like getting lost in the movie again And in that moment of reifying things, again, there's attachment and suffering. So we can really see it from these different angles, from these different sides. It's very helpful in undertaking the practice to have it established on the foundation of right view even if that right view at the beginning is either conceptual or intellectual or some mixture of experience, experiential and intellectual. It's important to at least have some kind of framework for understanding on whatever level that there is no one there. And that was the That's what I appreciated so much about that sutta. The Buddha just unpacked. You know, when you really look for the Tathagata, for the Buddha, for any one of us, we're not to be found when we're looking carefully at experience. What there is is physical sensations and feelings and perceptions and mental activities and moments of consciousness. That's what's actually to be found. And so even if we don't know this completely and fully, just to have it as a general framework of understanding, of right view, very much keeps the practice going in the right direction and facilitates the coming back again and again to letting go. Tires 
the carburetor, the whatever, mm-hmm. you put it all together, right. and it's a car. Right. So no, this, this is a good question. It's about whether the self could be considered the sum total of all the parts, just like a car is the, you know, the total of the, of the parts put together. This is very much, this question very much has to do with the union of the relative and absolute understanding. On a relative level, and even on a functional level, the car exists, we get in it, we drive it. On an absolute level, there's no thing in itself which is car. And so when we see that, we're not surprised when it breaks down. (laughs) And really, that's, that's the crux. You know, on a relative level, of course, we exist as individuals and we live our life from that place. This is the relative level of experience. The problem is, if we don't see through that, you know, to the more absolute understanding that there's no one there, then as the body gets older and sicker and decomposes, then we suffer because we're attached to this notion of a self, of this being self. That's why the, the relative and absolute have to inform each other. So we're able to actually live in the relative level from which we do with the freedom that comes from absolute understanding. So, and the danger, which I alluded to Thursday night, can come from either side. If we get attached to emptiness, then we're losing sort of the experience of the relative. If we get attached to the substance, substantiality on the relative level, we lose the wisdom of emptiness. And so that's the union of practice. It's big. (laughs) It's very helpful in the practice to kind of have an appreciation of that from the aspect of bodhicitta, you know, the motivation in our practice, from just a, the big view of the growth of understanding of relative and absolute. Because if we have that greatness of vision of what we're doing, it actually makes it easier just to settle back into the moment with patience, with acceptance, with openness. Sit and walk, sit and walk, sit and walk, sit and walk, sit and walk. And the whole dharma unfolds.
are the two different? seems to me that the commitment to every moment of practice is the commitment to awakening. And what more can we do? Of course, we may notice that we actually are not present for every moment. You know, and so then our practice, whether in this kind of situation or in our lives, really is the practice of coming back. There are so many different models, you know, or ways of understanding the path. And I think it's helpful to keep in mind the range of them because at different times each particular model will give us uh, support and energy. For example, one model is that the practice, the path, is about the cultivation and ripening and maturity of the paramis, of the perfections. And so we engage in intensive retreat in our life outside in cultivating them of generosity and truthfulness and patience and concentration and loving-kindness, all of the different of the perfections. And it's said that the the Buddha himself, over many lifetimes, his practice was this cultivation. So in that regard, we can see that we're following on that same path. From another model we can appreciate the teaching that the mind is already pure, is already luminous. And so we actually are playing with a full deck all the time. It's just that we get seduced by the obscurations which make us forget that or not see that. You know, and so we get caught up in desire and aversion and judgment and planning in all the forces in the mind, which when we're not aware of them, we get reborn in that particular little mind world for that period of time. But then it's a question simply of coming back to that quality of open awareness rather than in the other model, rather than a developmental sense, it's more coming back to completion. I think there are a lot of ways of kind of seeing the work we're doing. But as you expressed right at the end, it really is a question of each moment. And that's, that's what the path is. That's what the practice is uh, for all of us. But in order to actualize that rather than to have it as a nice theory. You know, we all, I think, would agree that it's, it's a good idea to be present. 
that's where this quality of virya or courageous heart, courageous effort, you know, is needed. We really need to energize that commitment, not for reaching out. It's not a striving. It's not trying to get something. It's this commitment to actually open, to be present in this very natural unfolding. And this retreat is the most amazing time because you've given yourself the treat of having nothing else to do. (laughs) Here's this expanse of time and your only job is to be present. You don't have any other responsibilities. You don't have anything else to do except be present moment after moment. Of course, we forget and then we come back. But really look at the quality of your commitment to that. You know, are you kind of gliding through the day in some comfortable pattern that's been established? Or are you really taking each step with care? It doesn't mean getting tight and it doesn't mean struggling with anything. But are you really there for each step, for each movement, for each sound? And this is, I think, this is a very good time in the retreat sort of to really look at the way we're practicing, you know, and energize that commitment. And again, it can be done from this place of tremendous uh, joy, not not from a place of should or ought or whatever, just, okay, here I am. Can I really feel what's happening in each moment? And we forget and we come back. So my question is, 
fallout from practice, or can it be used in some way to uh, direct and inform Did you hear the question in the back? Yeah. <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> I was hoping you did. <laughs> it's about noticing certain patterns in the mind. A lot of futurizing, whether it's of the next five minutes or the next day or the next month or the next lifetime, and how much of this uh, sort of planning mind in some way creates a sense of security. Uh, And is this just kind of the natural fallout of the practice, or is there some way of understanding and using this? One of the teachers I was with um, recently uh, was actually a Tibetan teacher. We were kind of with him informally for some time. And sort of in this last time, he was speaking a lot about pride. He was kind of hammering that one home. And as I was listening, I thought, that's not really my thing. You know, <laughs> but I didn't feel like that was a really strong collage in myself. So I have my, my assortment. But, <laughs> but he made such a point of it that since that time, it's really been in my mind to look. It's almost like there's nothing but... because I just see how many thoughts in one way or another are self-referential it's not necessarily pride as being you know better than anybody or even necessarily in comparison but just to see how the root of so many thoughts is some sense of I. Even with the understanding that that very thought is selfless, but still that habit, that pattern is there. I find that extremely helpful because in viewing, in understanding the patterns of thought in that way, it has helped me feel the contraction of mind when things are rooted or refer back to a sense of I, to a sense of self. And feeling the contraction of it really helps to let go and open up. It's like the image of when we know we're holding on to a hot burning coal, we don't have to think about it. 
we let go. We don't deliberate. You know, should I hold on a little longer? When we see the suffering, not, not really not see it, when we feel it, when we feel the suffering of the contraction, in the very awareness of that, and you, you can almost literally feel the heart relax. So in the awareness of kind of all these patterns of thought, rather than simply recognize them as planning or future or rehearsing, whatever it may be, see if you can feel how they're rooted in the contraction of self, self-referentialness. You follow? Because when you're at that level of awareness, you may notice that the simple awareness of that contraction is enough to release it. Rather than kind of staying more on the content level, even with awareness. So that that could be one approach. I found it extremely liberating. He didn't really define it. He was just using that word, but what would be the note that would that word? You well, you you could note pride, you could note self. You know, however it is that you're really perceiving it or feeling it. Uh, it was more the sense of getting a clear a clear experience of it. And again, like in so much of the practice, you know, we can be going along thinking, hmm, there's not much of that, <laughs> until we in some way take a new look. And that's why the emphasis on sort of energized awareness rather than cruise control. And it's tremendously, uh, I don't know what the right word is it, not exactly exciting, but it's, there's a quality of joyfulness, even in, just joyfulness of discovery, you know, even when it's these calaces that we're discovering. But it's much more joyful to see it than not to see it and simply be acting it out unconsciously. So that's really, that's the spirit of the practice. So as you go through the day, even from now, this very moment, really take care with each moment. From that place of being settled back, not not tightening, not tensing, not struggling, but you're sitting and you stand up. Really feel that movement carefully. See how all those sensations of movement are being known quite spontaneously and effortlessly when you're present for them. It's just standing and then turning and then taking a step. And even as you go into the shoe room, 
See if you can actually continue through that minefield so that you stay as attentive there as you are in the hall. And likewise, just through the whole day. one announcement before we take questions this morning to practice. One at a time. Is that? No, the question was about sitting with unpleasant situations, in this case, the feeling of cold in the back in the early morning sitting, and noticing what the mind does with that, whether it can stay mindful, whether it goes into reactiveness and aversion. I think it is skillful practice. You know, it's very much in the line of what we talked about earlier, at least at times, practicing with that quality of resoluteness the quality of a vow, I'm going to sit here and not move. Let me die. I want to see what happens. And just to see, to have that that kind of strength to be with whatever arises. It's tremendously energizing. But that has to come from a place of interest and a place of willingness, not from a place of should in the mind because that's that's not the right motivation then but when there is the interest and the willingness then there's a real power in that The question was about uh, in a space of choiceless awareness where so many different things are going on through the different sense doors, 
still the mind seems to alight on one or another at different times, and it feels like there's some element of choice involved in that. Um, I think there is, from the perspective of intention being a common factor, which is arising in every moment, and intention doesn't always... The flavor of intention as a mental factor is not always so much that sense of willing something. It also has the meaning of organizing all the factors around a particular object. And so moment after moment, there's this organization which is taking place, directing the mind and all its factors to a particular object. Often it comes about because the object itself is predominant. It's like the mind is pulled to what is predominant. I wouldn't so much be concerned about the mechanics of it. Rather, I would simply rest in the awareness and notice this is arising and being known, this is arising and being known, this is arising and being known. Um, It could be. Pardon? I would surrender to how it's happening rather than trying to figure out how it's happening. When the Buddha talked about 17 trillion mind moments in in the flesh, it would be hard to count them all and to see what each of them is doing. One of the things that I've been talking a lot about in the interviews is sort of framing the process in the passive voice. And so talking about how sounds being known, thoughts being known, sensations being known. It seems to help take out the I or the self from the knowing that it's just a process, something arising, being known, moment after moment after moment. Can we simply be with that? And of course, what happens is we get distracted. We get seduced by a thought, a comment, a reaction, a judgment, whatever. And so we're lost for some period of time. In the moment that we're aware that we've been lost, already we're back. So you can smile at that moment. And we're ready back, something else being known. Sense this reality really 
puts a jack boot on that, the way I'm perceiving the world. Uh, my, it requires me to run a lot faster just to, you know, get the necessities for myself than I'm, I feel like I'm capable of doing. Like 40 minutes of meditation a day won't hold a Southern California day. I get a lot of fear, that, you know, about going back. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry, but it just really hurts. And I had to stay with it. Mm-hmm. it seems that uh, that what's going on out there is not momentary. It's, it keeps coming back, manifesting as the same vision. Okay, the question was about fear or anxiety or agitation arising, particularly around thoughts of being back in the world and feeling that the level of daily practice is not sufficient to actually hold the level of interaction and intensity that goes on in the world. And in thinking about that now, creating a sense of fear and anxiety that's hard to be with now. I think that in some way it's simpler than you're viewing it. (laughs) And two suggestions for the time that you're here. And at the end of the retreat, we'll be talking about ways of really incorporating the practice on many levels into our life outside. But in terms of what's happening right now, when there's a strong emotion like fear or anxiety, sometimes going back to the breath is a way of calming the mind and tranquilizing it a bit. But sometimes it's impossible. The energy of the emotion is is much too strong. And to go to the breath is too small or too fine an object. So it's not always the best approach. What I found quite helpful in times of strong emotional energy is to use the whole body, just sitting or sitting and touching as your focus because it's very obvious. There's nothing you have to go searching for. When you're sitting and you just note sitting, feeling the entire body, in the feeling of the sitting posture, you will be aware of the emotional energy. You'll be aware of the energy of fear, anxiety. You're not doing anything about it. You're just sitting and feeling it in the space of the entire body. And then grounding it 
you note sitting and going to a specific touch point, like the buttocks and the cushion on the knees and the floor. And just hold, hold the energy in that awareness, sitting, where you feel whatever it is, touching. You're not going to any specific point. You don't even necessarily have to label the, the kind of emotion it is. Just sitting, touching. So it's, very, it's a very simple approach that creates a big enough container to hold the energy. You follow? When you try to go to the breath, the container is not big enough, and so the energy spills, spills over. Because that's one piece. The second piece, and this, this really gets to the crux of the matter, We live in mind-created worlds. You're sitting here thinking about life in Southern California or wherever, creating this little thought bubble, living in it. And in that little bubble, there are various scenarios going on, creating the fear, creating the anxiety, But really all that's happening is that it's a thought in the moment. But when we don't see that that's all it is, we get lost in that mind world with all the attendant feelings, anxieties, whatever. This happens I don't know, what's a bigger word than zillion? It, it happens continuously throughout the day for shorter or longer periods of time. We're just sitting. Awareness is a situation of such simplicity. It's just sitting, aware of things being known. That's all. Sound, sights. But what happens, thoughts or images come because they're subtle. They don't impinge in the same way that a sound impinges or a sensation impinges. Because they're subtle and soft, they slide in unnoticed. They slide in unnoticed. We buy in to the content. We create our little world. It's like taking rebirth in that mental creation. Right here we have samsara unfolding. I mean, this is the samsara ground over and over and over again. We take rebirth in all of these worlds until the moment when we say, ah, oh, that's, that's just a thought. And in that very moment, shh, it's like we're let out of the grip of it, we're released from it. Right back here, hearing, sitting, touching, breathing. So this is two sides of this question then first is learning how to be with the energy that's created, right? So we're not fighting with it and struggling with it. You give a big enough container, sitting and touching, so you can feel it and be with it. And at the same time, notice how that whole situation has been created by getting lost in a particular thought form. 
So in that way, you really, you really. You see the basic emptiness of it all. Do you follow? You can do this. This, this is not, this is not a project for 20 years down the road. This is this morning. No, it really is. This is not some esoteric thing. It's simply paying attention to those times of when we're lost in a thought, which you'll have plenty of opportunity. And notice those moments when you awaken from being lost in the thought, which you will also have plenty of opportunity. And just really notice how in the being lost, we've created a whole world, and in the awakening from it, we're right back here in the ease of awareness. (laughs) Enjoy the rounds of rebirth (laughs) and the freedom from them. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.